Member will state the verse and the question, and then he'll answer, and then we'd just, uh, any comment or discussion? Okay, good evening, everyone. Um, I, I find it very interesting that we've just been reading in the book of James that we ought to not desire to be teachers, and here we are, question and answer night, a bunch of us. Uh. <laughs> so, in, in, especially in light of that, uh, I got a particular doozy of a question, and it's simple. It says, can you explain... 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. So I dare say in our society, no, uh, no man really wants to address chapter 2.15 with the same authority that our, our brother Paul did um, because it contains, you know, in our society, potentially incendiary remarks, such as that women ought to adorn themselves in modest apparel, verse 9, uh, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold pearls or costly clothing. Well... Again, that's a difficult statement to swallow. Let's continue on to the end of the chapter. Though let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. So, <laughs> again, doozy of a question. Um, let's begin. Let's just go right at it, and uh, I'll take you to a few different places that I believe are relevant. To give a summary in the beginning, I believe that Paul is offering verse um, 13, 14, and 15, at least the first part of 15, as an explanation, according to his apostolic authority, as to why women should learn in silence and submission and not to usurp authority uh, over men. And his first reason is that <clears throat> man was formed first and the woman was deceived and fell into transgression. So those are his reasons um, for saying, and he gives us a qualifier here, nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. So let's turn over to Genesis 3.15 first, and we'll just read before we try to summarize everything. Genesis chapter 3, if you're not familiar, is the fall of mankind out of the good grace of the Lord, and this is when they, became, they came to know evil through the eating of the fruit. All right, <clears throat> I'm not going to recount the whole chapter and uh, just assume that there's a, a basic knowledge of what's happened. There was uh, Eve being deceived, Adam eating also, then some blame shifting, and eventually we're right down to it. It's all been exposed in front of the Lord, and he's pronouncing some curses upon them in uh, the order of guilt. So to the, in verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. She, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Uh, your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. So there you go, right there. We have Paul's reasoning laid out. Adam was formed first, and lo the Lord has set him, uh, the men, to be the head over the women. Again, super glad I got this topic to talk about. <laughs> it's always uncomfortable, especially in, uh, in light of the way that our society is, society is currently structured. Um, <clears throat> but as a qualifier to that, I... I'm very glad that the Lord has given us uh, very clear directions as to what we're supposed to do so we don't have to wander about in confusion. All right, so in, regarding the statement that the Lord has uh, said to the woman, I'm sorry, to the serpent, and between your seed and her seed, and my Bible is capitalized, um, <clears throat> he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This we take as a reference to the seed of the woman um, bringing forth the Messiah. So, my first question I'd like to ask you for consideration, was Eve saved through her childbearing? I believe so, yes. And not just um, the, uh, the notion that she was, uh, the actual act of bearing a child is what saved her. We're talking about Eve's seed was the Messiah, traced down through his genealogy. For all men traced back to Adam. And through Eve's second, uh, third son, I'm sorry, through her, th his, her third son, we can find the Lord's genealogy. So was Eve saved through childbearing? Yes, but only because the Messiah came through her. Now, 
Does that mean every woman saved in their childbearing? Well, I don't believe so. I think there's a contrast that Paul includes in his uh, letter to Timothy. But before we get into that, let's mention uh, just topically the typology of women in the Bible. Uh, Many times the nation of Israel is referred to as the husband of the Lord. And you'll see, we'll turn to Isaiah 54, we'll see that. And uh, the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. So, uh, we're, we're all women in a figurative sense, uh, according to the Lord and our relationship with him. This is not a literal thing, it's a, a figurative thing. So, uh, without dawdling anymore, let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. <coughs> in Galatians chapter 4, this is Paul writing again, which might provide a little bit more clarity as to why he's uh, written what he has to Timothy. And we're going to begin in verse uh, 21. I'm sorry, not 21. No, yes, 21. Uh, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you, not he- do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he, <coughs> excuse me, uh, but he who was born, who was of the bondwoman, uh, was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, of which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds, to, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, and he quotes, uh, we're not going to turn there for sake of time. Uh, and he quotes Isaiah 54, verse 1. Rejoice, O barren. Uh, you who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Or Isaiah 53 in, my, in this translation says, the married woman. So who was uh, the child of desolation in this scenario? It was Ishmael, the son of Hagar. And who was the, the woman who was married, who had the husband? It was Sarah. Yes, great. And uh, so moving on with our analogy. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh and then persecuted of him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not as children of the bondwoman, but of the free I'm using that passage, and he's he's writing to Galatians for a completely different purpose. But Paul's explanation of that scenario that happened in Genesis in Abraham's life, I think serves to to deepen our understanding of what he's saying to Timothy. So much so as just in the respect of the typology, again, of women. And it's specifically how it corresponds to us. We're heirs with Isaac. Not literally, unless you happen to be uh, of Hebrew descent, but figuratively and spiritually. So when we turn back to Timothy, <clears throat> we'll read it again and uh, just try to summarize what we've gone over. And then I'll leave it up to uh, comments. We're just going to read verse 15. Nevertheless, she, and I believe Paul was referring to Eve when he says she, uh, will be saved in childbearing. If they... Uh, When we think of they, I believe he's referring to the they of verses um, uh, 11 and and 12. If they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. So in in different versions, like um, Young's literal translation, uh, it says, um, nevertheless, she will be saved through the childbearing, Again, a, a more direct reference to Genesis 3.15. And there, in the ESV, it does a greater grammatical service to us by putting a very large dash between childbearing and if. So to remove some of the confusion as to the relation of that whole statement. But anyways, um, that's my explanation. So whoever asks a question, I hope that's a help to you. Uh, women are not saved through the physical act of childbearing Um, in a figurative sense we're all saved through the childbearing because uh, a son was conceived of a virgin and uh, later would become 
our Christ, and he would be sacrificed as it was prophesied. So, yes, we're all saved through the childbearing, as Eve was. Um, but women, again, are just being commanded here to do the things that Paul had written for them, to learn in silence and submission. Uh, again, to wear clothing that's appropriate for um, professing good works and continuing in faith, love, holiness with self-control. So anyways, I'll leave it open for comments now <clears throat> before moving on to question two. Um, that's, that's in reference to the first half, Eve being saved through the childbearing. So Eve was, uh, my, my statement really is to summarize it, Eve was saved through the childbearing, not because she bore a child, as, as is, is natural for her to do, but because the one child she bore, yeah, the, the one child she bore, Seth, uh, you know, again, the prophecy in Genesis 3.15. So I only wanted to further support that with Galatians 4 because it's a great explanation of, again, being one being the inheritor of all things, of the promises, and the other of desolation and destruction. So that was really just to prop up um, that Eve was saved in her childbearing because through her, the Messiah. Okay. Yeah. So that was more substantiated Genesis 3 than trying to... Yeah, and that wasn't... I was just trying to that okay. get across that whole idea of Eve being saved because of the promises that God gave to all the descendants of that son. You know, so it, it, you could look at it this way. Um... Eve was saved in childbearing because she bore a son who bore a son who bore a son. Fast forward to Christ, <laughs> who was the son of man. So, yeah. But this passage in 1 Timothy 2 is, is verse 15 is not speaking of Eve. I believe the first half is. And when it, we get to when it says, nevertheless, she will be saved, I think is speaking of Eve and the they continue in faith is not. I think it's referring back to the, con the, the, the women who are referred to earlier in a few verses. That's, what, that's how I read it. And so again, leaving it open for other input, as I am definitely no definitive source of uh, discerning this. Well, first 14 is And, and again, we go from a singular, she, to the plural, they. And I don't think that's to imply that um, she will be saved in childbearing as they will all be saved in childbearing. Evils will be saved in the childbearing, you know, break, if they continue. You know, so I think that, that there's a, um, a break in, in meaning for who's being referenced. I'm sorry, I just wanted to mention one more thing, is that really the um, verses 13 through 15 only exist in the chapter, not as the point, but as the explanation to the point. For instance, if we go back to the beginning, um, Paul, in light of the fact that he had to deliver certain people to Satan, uh, Hymenius and Alexander, uh, he delivered to Satan that they might not learn that may, they might learn to not blaspheme. Um, he exhorts for prayer, supplications in light of that fact, and then he gives commandments to men. Uh, he, I'm sorry, he explains salvation a little bit, and then he explains his apostleship, and then he gives commandments to men, and he gives commandments to women, and then he goes on to explain this is why it's it's that order, and this is so those those three verses are tucked in as an explanation. Um, not as the point. If I, if I might, I'm going to read from um, Young's literal translation. And, uh, and Adam was not deceived, verse 14, but the woman, having been deceived, into, into transgression came. It doesn't flow very well. And she shall be saved through the childbearing if they, if they remain in faith, love, and sanctification, which doesn't invalidate everything you've said. And to, just to recap for everybody, Dave is saying that the role of the woman is what's being touted here, if I'm, if I'm correct. The role of the woman is, and you could even substitute saved, it's, it's not a word that has one direct meaning. It's not necessarily meaning um, salvation and in the biblical sense or in the uh, legal sense as we consider it, our justification before God. It could mean uh, um, what preserved, sorry, preservation. Like, so she shall be preserved uh, through childbearing if they remain in faith, love, and sanctification, sobriety. So, 
what he says is not invalid. Actually, it's a really a, another good logical explanation to it. Um, just not the one I took away. So, again, the benefit of moderated discussion, right? <laughs> I didn't quite hear what you said. <coughs> and we're in second, we're in First Timothy chapter two. Well, offhand, I don't know. That'd be something I'd have to further research. Um, I do know that that his Paul's way, right? You know, immediately following is for the women to ask their husbands. So to find what specific law is being referenced, I'd have to I'd have to break out a uh, a commentary and uh, do some digging. Yeah. So offhand, I don't know. I I know that in Timothy he doesn't reference that. He's simply going by means of his apostolic authority, but knowing Paul and the length and breadth of his arguments, I'm sure that if someone questioned him, he'd have a ready answer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sake of time, maybe that would be good to address. Yeah, remember, I'm first up and I got the doozy, so. Uh, no. um, <coughs> excuse me. Any other comments or questions? Yes, sir. And, uh, understand, from my understanding, it's it's the only means by which we can dwell harmoniously with each other. <laughs> um, anyways, um, I, I didn't mention it for sake of time, but to further prop up that uh, typology between um, men and women in the New Testament, I'm sorry, men and women being the bride of Christ in the New Testament, we have Ephesians chapter 5, which offers a lot of insight. Um, Paul just boldly saying that the head of every man Christ and that the head of every woman is her husband so laying it out like that you have you have a direct line of submission if you want to look at a, a, a chain of command if you will and that's like our brother brought up over here that's the same order you see him um, purporting in 1 Corinthians 14 is that that women ask their husbands and then husbands should they be found wanting in knowledge you know can always ask the Lord <laughs> um Anyways, my, any other comments before we move on to question number two? Okay. Question number two that I got and received this morning was, uh, why do we call, or wh why is it called the Holy Bible? For instance, what, what, what's with, why is, it, why is the Bible holy? You know, so first of all, let's, let's just take a quick, I, I didn't have as much time to prepare about this. So I'm much more open to comments, uh, should we have the time, uh, which I don't think we do. <laughs> Anyways, uh, let's talk about the, the first, the word Bible. It's a Latin root word that just refers to book. So it's the book. Uh, I believe it's been referred to as such because of its great importance and its meaning in mankind. For instance, if we take the, the statement of the, uh, the Apostle John directly from John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So God to us right here is Emmanuel. Here's the word. This is my Emmanuel, having never seen the Son in the flesh. So, this by this in the Spirit, I can know the Lord, and I can uh, walk with Him, and I can commune with Him. But I need to know what He's written, because uh, that a way of explaining it is there, there should be no difference between who I say I am and who I really am. The same, the same is true with God. He has said who he is in here, and he truly is that person. 
And he's established quite a system of witnesses to purport that. So why do we call it holy, though? Well, let's talk about what the word holy means. From my understanding, a good definition would be separate. And the type of separate, not not a, a, a state of super spirituality, just separate. So the Lord, uh, in his dwelling place up above in heaven, is separate from us. So if we can turn to Isaiah, chapter 6, we can see that he is holy, holy, holy. He's separate in every way. Um, but why do we call the Bible holy? What's so separate about this book? Well, I could go into a bunch of explanations about <clears throat> uh, how that the Bible is... Um, you know, the, uh, the Word of God, and so it's separate from all other books, and that's true. But I think we might find a slightly better answer in Psalm 138. And just to give me one moment here. In Psalm 138, we'll read from the beginning, I will praise you with my whole heart. Before the gods, I will sing praises to you. I will worship toward your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth, for you have magnified your word above all, your name. So, if the seraphim in heaven are encircling the Lord and constantly crying out that he is separate and that he is holy, and then he's gone so far as to magnify his word, or shall we even say the Lord, above his name, I think we can consider the word to also be holy. And that's a much more sound and biblical argument than just reasoning through it. Anyways, comments to that. That's, that's all I had prepared for that second question. Why is the Bible, why is it the Holy Bible? All right, thank you. Bring this down a little bit. Cool. All right, um, I also got an interesting question, which um, I felt I didn't have a stand on it and maybe didn't really uh, research it enough to know where I stand on it, and I felt like whoever wrote the question I think the Holy Spirit was leading you to write it so I can answer it, so I can learn about it, because it really blessed me a lot um, on what it is. It's great. It's great. So um, the question was, what does born of water mean in John 3, 5? Um, let's go ahead and turn there, John 3, 5. For the sake of time, I'm not going to actually read the context, but I'll try to give you uh, an overview of the conversation that uh, Jesus had with Nicodemus. Um, and... And then uh, go from there, what born of water means. Um, so Nicodemus was um, a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. And also that he taught the Jews um, where it says in verse... In verse 10 where it says, Are you, uh, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Um, so Nicodemus came to him. Actually, I'll just read maybe uh, the first five verses. Um, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Uh, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know uh, that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things and you, no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, and this is uh, the first um, verse that he says to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's room and be born? And Jesus answered, uh, and Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is the flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is the Spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And I'll go ahead and stop there. So the first question that Nicodemus has was um, well the first thing that Jesus said was most assuredly I say unto you unless uh, one is born again and born again um, in the old Greek was means um, the word is anothen and uh, again means from above um, so born from above and then the verse 5 where it says more, more surely I say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit um, I feel I, like yesterday as I was contemplating on it um, considering um, the idea of physical birth considering the idea of baptism um, and then considering the idea that uh, born of water which would be this is where I stand would be the word of God 
for us, practically. Um, and I'll have verses to back that up. Um, so, verse 3, I noticed that verse 5 is pretty much the exact same verse. And I think Jesus was trying to give him the gospel to make him understand because he didn't understand. So he split up born again into these two two, uh, uh, um, two separate words, which would be born of water um, and the spirit. So I'm going to go ahead and we're going to go to Titus 3.5 to back up the idea that the water would be the word of God and Jesus, in his particular case, talking to Nicodemus. And then here in this verse, we're going to see the Trinity. We're going to see the Father, the Son, and, uh, and the Holy Spirit. Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to his mercy, which is God, he saved us through the washing of regeneration which I feel would be Jesus Christ, the regeneration of his blood that cleanses our heart and our spirit and renewing of the Holy Spirit where the Spirit indwells in us after we, uh, we become born again. And so when Jesus spoke to him, I think he was con- considering himself, but he's not going to say, it's, it's my blood that will save you because I think if people read that, and there was a washing of the blood of Jesus, people would be pouring like blood all over themselves. And he wouldn't understand what that means because he was already confused. Um, so in Ezekiel, we're going to go to Ezekiel 36 and verse 25. Um, and I'll go ahead and read that. And I, I transferred over to this verse because Jesus said, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? And this was a promise that... Um, God gave to Israel. I'm going to go ahead and read that, which kind of clarifies a little bit. Hopefully I'm not going to steer anybody kind of uh, off the path. Maybe you understand what I'm saying. If not, uh, clarify it. But uh, verse 25 and 26, but I'm going to go ahead and read verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into our our own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, And you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Um, And I think this is symbolic where he says, I'll sprinkle clean water on you. People who believe that it might be baptism might consider that it's actually water. But um, in verse 6, he says, I'm going to take a a heart out of you and give you a new heart. I mean, he's not physically going to rip your heart out and give you a new heart so I think sprinkle clean water the Israelites knew well what sprinkling of blood was um, when they were on the altar for sacrifices so I think this is considering the future idea of Jesus Christ coming sprinkling the water which would be the the, the blood of Jesus Christ for us where in Titus it talks about the renewing and regeneration um, where also uh, you you see Jesus there Um, and then the word washing in Titus 3.5 is only used twice in the Bible. Um, the Greek word is latron, or latron, and it's used twice. And then we'll go to Ephesians 5.26, and this is the other place where it's used. Ephesians 5.26. And then this is where practically it would be um, the word of God that renews us. Um, 526, and that he, um, God, might sanctify and cleanse through Jesus, her, which would be the church, with the washing of water by the word. And then so this kind of solidified the idea that um, born of water would be the word of us constantly being in the word of God and uh, uh, renewing our, our spirit through uh, Jesus Christ's writings. Um and I think also there was, there was two, other, two other things. The other time that water is used, or can anybody tell me where water was used, um, the word water was used, but it wasn't used as what it actually is physically. In one situation with Jesus, like where he actually used water, but it meant spiritual application. Yeah. 
exactly. And and so you had another one. Mm, amen. Right. So so that's another part. So considering this would be baptism would be a physical aspect where even in Titus where it talks about not of ourselves, baptism would be a physical act and be post being um, uh, born again. Um, and and I think this would be the only spot where people would say, hey, baptism is needed for for salvation. But also the thief on the cross was he baptized? No, he just said you'll be with me in paradise. Um, so that's another um, kind of confirmation that I would feel uh, to kind of sit with that in my heart. And the Holy Spirit just kind of revealed it to me that it just worked worked out that way. Um, okay. Yeah, and I considered that um, heavily because um, first I would go in the idea of, I kind of didn't want to say this up here, but um, the idea of being born of water uh that that you are a human being, and then there's animals also that are born of water, you know. And but animals we know don't go to heaven because they don't have a spirit. So that would make sense in, in that idea. Um, but then the the thought came to me, and this is might be it's a can of worms, and I don't know if I want, want to do this. But 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 children who are not born, what happens then? You know, they have the spirit, but they're born of water. But how about the babies that aren't born? How about the babies that? You know, did not make it, and and so so where do you go from there? And then how do you back that up? And that's why I didn't want to go in that direction. But I also think because that verse, um, I kind of kind of threw that out because verse verse three and verse five are so similar that I feel like Jesus was just trying to clarify to him that born again, born from above, would be these two ideas. So the born of water would be something from above, and then the spirit would be from above. So that that was my idea of, of sticking with that. And where he says flesh is flesh and spirit is spirit, um, I think he was just saying like, where well, I'm speaking to you are spiritual things, you know. And where he even says that he says, if I tell you of he- uh, earthly things, and then I tell you you don't understand that, how can I tell you of spiritual things? So that was my idea, and that's kind of like why I didn't didn't go that route. I think that both of your explanations are well presented, um, and I myself have tried to reason this through. I don't see a way to be dogmatically conclusive on either one. Mm. Either one, I think, are both true theologically and uh, uh, logically in the passage. In the context. As long as you understand verse, and verse 5 is the key, because you have to view that phrase about the water and the spirit two different ways, depending on which argument you, you lean to, right? Um, if you see verse 5 as saying, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. If your understanding of the water is the word of God, which is valid, as you said, Ephesians says the washing of the water of the word. 1 Peter chapter 1 says we're born again by the word of God. And so the word of God is, is tied together in this idea of being born of water, if the water is speaking of the word of God. Hmm. But what you have to realize then in verse 5 is this born of water and the spirit is speaking of the same birth, the second birth. It's a combination of the work of the word of God and the work of the spirit that accomplishes the second birth that he was speaking about in verse 3. And what he and then verse 6 is the clarifying point for Nicodemus then that says if you're born of flesh that's a physical birth. Hmm. Being born of the spirit is a spiritual birth. That's the second birth. And it's the word of God and the spirit that does it. Right. And that flows logically and theologically correct. But if, if, if you see the water of the spirit as almost like a double explanation for Nicodemus, five and six being perfectly parallel, water and the spirit being picturing the first birth and, and the second birth, mm. the water being the birth by flesh, the, the spirit being the birth of the spirit, then... Then, he, then again, it's theologically and logically correct, and I don't see grammatically a way to find out which of the two Jesus specifically meant, unless someone knows more about the grammar than I do. But I haven't been able to get any further than that. So if it's the, if he intended to mean the word of God, then both verse five, water and spirit, are speaking of the second birth. If it's meant to picture physical birth, then obviously we have first born, born once, and born again spiritually. Mm-hmm. 
a amniotic fluid inside the sac, yeah. And that was the idea. Right. Right. And and, and I thought about that too, but I I, I felt like like where, where I stand just yesterday, just looking at the two verses, they were so similar. And then for him to for Nicodemus to say, I don't really understand, he's like, Okay, let me let me make it a little easier for you and then I felt like born again was a split of of the whole from above vibe. So all right. Two more questions, right? Oh, two more questions, yeah. Three. Three. Three more. Matt. All right. All right, so I had a question. Let me just take it out here. My question was, uh, according to John 5:29, does this first indicate good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell? So let's just so uh, let's turn to John chapter five. Okay, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, we'll try to decipher this question. Actually, I'm gonna start uh, John 5:28 20, first. It says, "Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the, the graves will hear His voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation." So I read from the New, New King James Version. Um, I just want to start off by saying I, I don't believe that there are good and bad people. I think that, in, in a sense, like we're all we're all bad because you know the Bible is clear that you know for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That um, and you know Romans goes on to say you know there's none righteous, no not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They all have turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, no, not one. So I, I, I've, I think I want to be careful with using the term good and bad people. Um, I think the only way you could become a good person, so to speak, is is through Christ's righteousness, is because he's the only he's the only one who's 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 good ultimately, and that um, you know, if you trust in him, you believe in him, you receive him as your Lord and Savior. That's the only way you you can become good because his righteousness makes you um, makes you right before God, for a holy God. Because in your own strength, in your own way, you're 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 just a bad person in in general. And because of your sin, there's no way you can come to God. But through through Christ's blood, through His uh, receiving Him as your Savior, He you become a good person in God's eyes, and He sees you as justified and righteous. Um, so uh, I think that. When it's talking about here um, to the resurrection of life, I think it's talking about heaven, and I think, and also when it talks about the resurrection of, of condemnation, I think it's talking about hell. So um, when we back up to verse 28, it says, "Those who are in the graves will hear His voice." It's talking about First Thessalonians um, chapter four, how the dead in Christ shall rise first, and and um, you know, the Lord Himself ascended from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and uh, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And I think those who are in the graves will will, will rise, and they'll either stand um, in judgment, or they'll stand before God and be led into heaven. He'll say, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. Um, and also, I know that there was also um, different versions that say uh, those who have done good deeds, or those who have done bad deeds, and I want to just um, say that I, I looked over in New American Standard, and it does say deeds, but it's also in italics, so I think it was put in there. So I don't think it, it applies um, in that sense, because that doesn't really add up with Scripture, you know, and if you go all through it, um, to say that if you, if you have done good deeds, you're allowed to go, you're, you're, you know, you're allowed into heaven. Um, so I know for the sake of time, we can just like open it up for any comments. Anybody want to have anything to add to that? Does that make any sense? Good. All right. All right. With that, we'll turn it over to Andrew. Yeah, Jesus said, you know, in John six, you know, you want to know the work of God. This is, you know, believe in the one whom He has sent. So that's, in a sense, a work or a deed. But as far as like 
saying you have to do good deeds to get to heaven. I mean, we just, you know, Jason just read it in Titus, you know, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to God's mercy, he saved us. So, uh, if, yeah. Exactly. And us from some danger on the road, so praise the Lord we're still here, right? <clears throat> okay. So I have two questions as well. I'll do my best to handle them uh, to rightly, but also quickly. Uh, the first one is in Romans 8, verse 13. Which says, For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds uh, of the body, you will live. So, the, the question I had was just to explain that verse. So without any specific uh, question, I, I did my best to see what in that verse might be uh, worthy of or, or prominent uh, to need explanation. So the first one is what it means to, to live according to the flesh. And I think if we go back in the same chapter to verse 3, it says, What the law could not do since it was limited by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh by sending His own Son in flesh like ours, under sin's domain, as a sin offering. Now here's the key part in verse 4. In order that the law's requirement would be accomplished in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So if, if Christ's sacrifice was to fulfill the requirements of the law for those who do not walk according to the flesh, then that means walking according to the flesh is uh, to be an unbeliever, to be Christless. Because for those who believe in Christ, the, the, the requirements of the law have been fulfilled through Christ. And it says that that was done for those who do not walk according to the flesh. So what does it mean to live according to the flesh? That means that you are submitting to the flesh, to the desires of the flesh. To the, of, of the flesh. Um, in other words, more specifically, being a slave to flesh, which we can see in context is the issue. Chapter 7 talks about uh, the flesh's inability to resist uh, the things that it wants and its desires. So the, it's a matter of what we do now that we are in the Spirit. What do we do with those desires? Because we don't immediately uh, lose those desires, but what we get is a power 
stronger than those desires, right? Because we don't sin because we're tempted uh, by Satan. We sin because we want to, right? In, 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 the, in the warfare of Romans, Satan shows up in chapter 16, right? Much more important than, than fighting Satan is fighting sin, right? Our desire to sin, what we want to do. So I'll just read a few verses surrounding that verse 13 here, starting in 10 and going uh, through to 15. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you. Now, in verse 12, it starts uh, explaining that idea of, of slavery, what it means to, be, to live according to the flesh, to be a slave. It says, So then, brothers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So what does that verse mean? Quite simply, it means it's, it's, um, it's the gospel. If you live apart from Christ, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit of God you, you, you put to death uh, that old nature, the way you used to be, and you've accepted Christ, then you will live. You'll have that eternal life. Comments? Discussion? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, in preparing a few notes, I wanted to go back through uh, Romans, kind of backwards, looking at contrast, contrasts of spirit and flesh, but I sort of found that I would just be reading all of Romans. So, <laughs> thank you for bringing that up because it's absolutely, I mean, the, the spirit, flesh, spirit, flesh, constantly throughout and how the flesh uh, leads to death. Absolutely. And, I, and of course, the, the passage is not uh, if you sin, you're not a Christian, but it, it's rather if you're a slave to sin. Where, where does your slavery lie? Are you now a slave to the spirit uh, of God, uh, the new life that is in you, or are you uh, living according to the flesh or a slave to the flesh. I got the thumbs up to move on to the last one here. Um, uh, this is a question that it doesn't come with a reference. It's uh, a more of a theological question. Uh, some people take it lightheartedly, but I think it's worth um, an answer because it is an attempt to disprove God and any attempt to disprove God um, is worthy of being met uh, because truth uh, is not afraid of a question. So any questions that we have, we can uh, look to the Word of God and find those answers. So the question was, can God make a rock so big that he cannot lift it? The idea there is that either God cannot make a rock so big that he cannot lift it, and therefore he is not omnipotent, or he can make a rock so big that he can't lift it and therefore is not omnipotent. Uh, Another way of phrasing this is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Logically, one of those either ceases to exist or loses its title, right? If the force can't move the object, it's not an unstoppable force. If the object moves, it wasn't immovable. But these are both contained in one being here, right? These are not two separate things. We're talking about God entirely um, being both the unstoppable force and the immovable object. Well, the, the point of the question is to catch God or, or find something that God can't do. So for, to start, there's, there's lots of things God can't do, and that's just fine. Um, I'll have two references real quick. If people can flip for me to Hebrews 6.18. And 1 Timothy, if one person can find Hebrews 6.18 to read for me, and one person could find 1 Timothy 2.13. 
Whoever, not either order first, so whoever gets one of those first. Hebrews 6.18 or 1 Timothy 2.13. It is impossible for God to lie, right? Impossible for God to lie. Now, there's another verse we talk about that says, uh, oh, we'll get to it in a minute. But let's remember that word impossible for God to lie, okay? Uh, 1 Timothy 2.13. He cannot deny himself, right? So the idea of there's things that God cannot do, well, of course there are things God cannot do. He cannot contradict his own nature. So the, the whole point of the question is not really a threat uh, to the nature of God. The second thing is to define what it means to be omnipotent. Okay? Omnipotent, omnipotent does not mean that uh, you can do anything, but rather it is a description of the amount of power. Right? Not what that power is capable of, but rather the fact that it is unlimited power. Not that it can do impossible things. Uh, Matthew 19.26. Can anybody quote that? That's right. Okay. Um, Matthew 19.26 says, uh, with, or Jesus looked at the uh, disciples and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now that doesn't mean that uh, impossible things are possible for God. Because we already know there's some things that are impossible for God. It is impossible for Him to lie, right? So, contextually here, this is the, the difference between man's power and God's power, that all things are possible with God. But, for example, uh, God cannot make a two-sided triangle, right? Just because we string two words together does not make them exist or make them possible or make them a challenge for God. And so with that in mind, rocks are not infinite. So you can't have an infinite rock. So no, God cannot make a rock bigger than he can lift because that's not in a rock's nature to be infinite. And God doesn't make closing in a word of prayer unless there's any emergency last comment. Alright, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night, uh, this time that we've got to come together and examine uh, truth and examine your word. We thank you that your word is truth and that because your word is truth and because you are truth, we know it is impossible for you to lie. So we, we thank you for the promises that you've given us and how firmly we can stand upon them. Uh, please take us home safely. Uh, this traffic may be a little crazy right now, so please keep our uh, eyes attentive and protect us as we go. Bring us back safely next time. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.